My guest today is the CEO of Sendoso. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Chris is a one-of-a-kind individual. His incredible self-sustaining work ethic helps all individuals around him excel at a pace they've never experienced before. Here's another one. If you've ever had the, if you ever have the opportunity to be involved with Chris in a business venture, it is an opportunity you must not pass up. Chris, you're very welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Those are some great uh, testimonials. I love it. I'm sure they're well earned and they're all yours. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the problem was narrowing it down to just those. There was so many of them. And I think there's some common threads that, that I spotted throughout that, that I'd like to come back to things like energy and work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand you're in Ireland at the moment. I'd like to talk to you about uh, why you're visiting us. Uh, but before we do that, maybe you could kind of go back a little bit and share with us where you grew up, what kind of a childhood that was like. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in a, a smaller town called Sebastopol. It's about an hour north of San Francisco in Northern California. Um, parents, my dad was a, an engineer for the local city. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, they've lived in that house uh, for 40 years about now. So same house, lived there, kind of small town, uh, used to be known more for apples. Now there's, you know, vineyards and, and wineries. Um, but it was a, you know, small town born and raised and, uh, still visit mm. pretty frequently. So it sounds like a, quite a traditional, uh, upbringing. Yeah, you could say that traditional kind of uh, smallish town upbringing. Um, yeah. One of the things I noticed, Chris, was when you were in college, you were very much into entrepreneurship. You, you know, you got some awards there, and you were president of an of a. Of a I don't know if you call it an association. You might tell me about that in a moment. But I'm wondering, where does that entrepreneurial strain come from? Because it was clearly there at an early age. Yeah. So I can say it didn't come from my parents because my dad worked for the city government for 35 years. Um, and my mom, you know, was uh, mostly a stay-at-home mom. So I think it was probably born out of my proximity to Silicon Valley and seeing growing up these companies and startups. Um, although I would say that, you know, I was kind of a, a hustler kid growing up, you know, selling lemonade on the corner. There was a, a Christmas tree farm close to my parents' house that I'd sell mistletoe at for the holidays and make a bunch of money. So I was always doing these one-off things to make money. You know, I was the kid that was mowing the neighbor's lawns, things like that. Um, but in college, I really got interested in startups and uh, was able to uh, start a, um, a company uh, where I was able to get some money from the university to, to help found it. Um, and actually, you mentioned the the Innovation Association, which was a, a student-run uh, um, organization on campus. My goal of that was just to network with other like-minded people. Um, so I started that um, organization to network, but also to meet uh, individuals from the from not just the business side of the university, which is where I was from, but for the computer science side, because I wanted to find a co-founder for my venture. And so it actually paid off and I found uh, an engineering student who uh, was my co-founder for a company that I started in college. I see, I'm fascinated by this, Chris, because when I was that age, I was clueless, absolutely clueless. Yeah. So to have that kind of insight at such an early age but not coming from an entrepreneurial family, 
Mm -hmm. That's what, now you said, okay, I did the lemonade stands, I get it. But, you know, kids do that. I would have done the same with stands and, and, and you do it to to turn over some junk you have and make some money and yeah. it's pocket money essentially. Correct. But that's a very different, from, from there to that thinking of, I need to meet people, I need mm -hmm. to find a founder. It, it's, it's that and it has to be more than just growing up in Silicon Valley or close to. I mean, I think it was also, I, uh, you know, at an, in college, I really realized through seeing others success that in order to truly have, you know, uh, you know, uh, life changing wealth, uh, being a startup founder was one of those ways uh, to do that. And so I think I was also motivated by the large outcome that can happen from starting a company um, in exiting or being a, you know, world-renowned CEO. So I think that the, the, uh, the money side of things were also a driver that I realized, you know, was a good way to, to make money. <laughs> you, you mentioned life-changing wealth, which is, I haven't heard it expressed that before. That's a wonderful way to express it. Yeah. That would motivate you most. Uh, I would say it's one of the motivators. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, uh, creating a workplace that has a lot of employees that love their job is also quite motivating for me. Um, and creating a, a job that I am obsessed with and love is also very motivating. And then through starting the company, cr uh, creating a product that, you know, really helps customers um, is also very motivating. So I'd say it's a combination of a lot of motivations mm. that all together um, really keep me going. And, you know, you know, I'm, I have the opposite of like Sunday scaries, you know, I can't wait to, to get back to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, listen, I, I know my way, if, if I could bet on you from what everything I've read and understand, I know that would be my way of achieving life changing wealth. Yeah. Uh, assuming that, and I, and, and, you know, Touch wood, nothing happens, you know, because we, we know life throws up all sorts of yep. purpose, but nothing happens and you achieve that and you're well on, the, on your way to it is, you know, go 20 years down the line from now and let's say you, you finally set up, move on. What would you do? What, what, what would you do with your time? Let's say you yeah. don't want to go back into another venture. Take that off the table. Um, probably either uh, philanthropy and um, you know, giving back, I think, is one way. Um, getting into more investing um, could be another way or just, you know, kind of, uh, I, I, you know, hanging out and um, helping others, whether that's through uh, advising other entrepreneurs and mm. kind of giving back that way. Yeah. One of the things I noticed and I wanted to talk to you about uh, was in, even in college, it was an all right, I have it here, uh, all student rentals was a business yeah. you started. Correct. And then you were also a sales director with, did I have it right, with Yapstone? Correct. Um, but then, and this was what caught my attention. Then you were an AE. Yes. To the outside world, that looks like a step back. Can you explain that journey and the thinking behind it? Yeah. So, um, so I started this company in college that I then sold into Yapstone and I got into sales uh, with that company. Um, and uh, for me, one of the areas that I saw that I needed to improve on is I could go, I, I figured out how to go from kind of zero to one and, you know, take some sketches of an app of a website and turn it into an application people can use and get, 
you know, thousands of users. Um, All Student Rentals only had about 10 employees when we sold. So it was very, very much zero to one. And I wanted to kind of understand one to 100 um, on other people's dime or from other entrepreneurs, as I didn't know what it was like to have 100 or 1,000 employees. And so I was kind of a, you know, undercover employee, so to speak, like learning the ropes um, while also in the back of my mind thinking, what is that next big problem I want to solve? So I knew I wanted to get back into entrepreneurship at one point, but sales came natural to me. So, um, you know, going from Gapstone as a, as a sales director, moving into an account executive role, I was actually employee number zero at the company. There was two engineering co-founders. So it probably would have been more of like co-founder slash first employee slash account executive. And I was doing, you know, marketing and sales and customer success. And I was creating our first, you know, decks and this, I got all of our first customers. So it's much more than what reads on my LinkedIn profile. Um, But I realized that I, uh, you know, loved the account executive role and it was what really needed for the company. I think I had closed, you know, millions of dollars in revenue, which was what the company really needed to be successful was my contribution in revenue. And so that was uh, what I liked. And from there, I moved into another company that was uh, um, at a a smaller stage. Again, I was maybe employee number 10 at a company called TalkDesk and really saw that sales was something that I wanted to do at that company too. Um, Now TalkDesk is, you know, I think $10 billion valuation company that scaled up drastically. Uh, So that was a really good learning experience too. So then tell me a little bit about Sendoso, and I'm really interested yeah. because to me, it's the it's five years essentially Correct. that you've been with them, and that's that's a, that's an incredible growth curve in yeah. five years, certainly from my perspective. And sure. um, I'm, I'm interested in, from the entrepreneur's journey in terms of some of the hurdles, but I'm also interested in your growth over that time as well, the kind of things you've learned as an individual and how you've changed yeah, so I'll give some context for the for those listeners who maybe haven't uh, heard about Sendoso yet. So we're a, a sending platform that helps other companies send out uh, corporate swag, direct mail, gifts, handwritten notes, you name it, we can send it. Um, mostly used by sales teams, marketing teams to send stuff to prospects or customers with integrations into CRMs, um, you know, uh, sales engagement platforms like Outreach and SalesLoft. Um, and so it's that extra uh, tool that salespeople can use to really build better relationships with, with prospects and customers. And um, for context, you know, started five years ago, we're about uh, a little over 500 employees now. We've raised $155 million in funding, you know, tens of thousands of users, tens and millions in uh, revenue. Um, and so, uh, yeah, quite the uh, growth. But to take it all the way back to when, it, when I started the company, um, you know, I was, as, as we talked about, an account executive at TalkDesk. And I found myself feeling like I was spraying and praying, sending a gazillion emails out, and it was becoming less effective. And I was a creative individual at um, heart. And so I was doing a lot of mainly handwriting notes. I'd go find swag in our in our marketing closet and box it up, or I'd hear a dog bark on a sales call and then send the prospect a, you know, dog treats in the mail. Those kind of personal things that, you know, really set me apart. And um, it worked really well. It was just manual, time-consuming, spreadsheets, tracking links, expense reports. And so I dreamed of this idea of like, why can't I just click a button and magically things get sent out for me? Um, and so that was uh, kind of the aha moment. 
um, you know, corporate gifting and direct mail is a multi-hundred billion dollar uh, a year category that most people don't think about, but almost every single company has some kind of program where they're sending to prospects, customers, or employees. So it's a massive opportunity, um, but all started with kind of the pain point of me experiencing the pain, wanting to solve for it. And then uh, version one was actually uh, called Coffee Center, and it was just sending Starbucks gift cards. Um, and then that quickly evolved uh, to Sendoso, where you could send anything you wanted. Uh, I, I love this. I love this because it's just, it's, it could only have come from you doing the job. And yes, exactly. Yeah. I love the bit if I heard a dog bark. <laughs> That's fabulous. Now, and, and what it also got me thinking about was, because that experience of sending email after email is very common. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we were talking to reps and, ma and mostly sales leaders audience here is what are the kind of things in your experience work that, that yeah. bridge that gap between the noise of every rep trying to reach this one prospect and yeah. what you do? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that work. One, as I would say, um, integrating gifting or direct mail into your uh, outbound sales process, whether it's directly through, you know, sales loft outreach or whether it's one-off approach through Salesforce. So uh, I think the integration approach so that it's in your workflows is, is works. Mm -hmm. Then you have to really figure out what you're going to send. And I think that's where creativity comes in. And I think that creativity is one of those like um, sales skills that's hard to quantify, but is extremely valuable. And something if I was a sales leader, um, you know, something that I would look for in reps is like, how creative are you? Because I think creativity is one of those skills that can't really be automated. It can't be, you know, uh, as easily like, you know, computer AI driven. It's something that humans do with each other. And so I think that there's not a silver bullet when it comes to, to gifting and direct mail, but it comes with the human individual thinking about what should I send? Um, what should the note be? And so there's a myriad of different things that you can send, whether it's a, you know, a, a dog toy or whether it's some branded swag, whether it's a gift card, whether it's a just a note, whether it's some uh, sweet treats, flowers, you name it. There's um, really Sendoso takes care of all of the, the hard part, which is, you know, actually getting it sent, uh, finding all the different vendors under one roof in a marketplace, tracking the expenses, tracking the reporting and integration. So we take care of, you know, 99% of the, the headaches so that the salespeople can spend those precious minutes uh, deciding what they should send and the message that they should send and, um, you know, really getting creative. I want to talk to you about this creativity thing because it's uh, it's one of my soapboxes. I, I and I just to get your take on it. I see a yeah. lot, of, particularly younger reps. They're they're a different breed, and what I what I mean by that is that in the past, people would have looked to an in, a younger intake as did you have sales experience. Now mm -hmm. it's, it's different, and yeah. it's what life experience do you have, or in Europe, language experience is quite yep. important. And so somebody might be in college that have no degree related whatsoever to the demand yeah. coming in. But they, there's a lot of creativity in there. That's my experience. Correct. But I worry that somehow or another with a lot of the tools that they're using, a lot of the, the, the sales tech, in some respects, can ride roughshod, roughshod over their creativity as in just follow the process. 
And that could be a sales process or it could be sales tools that control that. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how do we how do we leverage both? Because it's not a case of either or, clearly. Because we're using outreach or um, any other tools to set sales cadences. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? I know 100% what you're saying. And so I think there's a, uh, a strategy you have to think about, which is how much can you automate and how much should you purposefully not automate and put creativity and put the human back in the process? And so I think outreach has done a phenomenal job of creating a repeatable process for, you know, an SDR to follow when they're outreaching. But you can also, you know, set, you know, step number two, rather than automating that email to say, hey, go find something personal to include in here or go to your research and then complete that step. And so I think it's being purposeful like that or step three, Sendoso them something. And so that that kind of mixes both worlds together, which is you get creativity and you get automation um, so that you can be better and faster and more efficient at your job, but you don't completely eliminate the human uh, aspect of it. Who inspires you most? Um, You know, it's a great question. I think that inspiration changes over time. You know, I think... uh, when I first got into entrepreneurship, um, I was inspired by an entrepreneur that I met in college named Chris Friedland, who was a, an advisor for me right out of college. Um, and that was very inspiring. He uh, had a, a large company and I thought, hey, I could be that. I could do that. Um, you know, now inspiration comes in different ways from reading books or podcasts. You know, my my family, my wife is inspirational to me, create, wanting to create a great future for us. Um, and ultimately my team, I'm inspired by seeing everyone smile and, um, you know, uh, I'm in, I'm in our new office in, in Dublin, Ireland this week, and it's inspirational to see that the happiness and just the excitement of this new, this new office and this new team, which, you know, just this office is, you know, uh, about the same size as the entire company was, you know, even just a few years ago. So, um, it's exciting to see the growth and that's in- inspiring to me. And what is it specifically brings you to Dublin? Is it, is it just a visit to the, the staff here? Or is there something else that you're, you're announcing or pushing? Yeah, so we are, um, we, we've invested a lot of money into Ireland. It's our new headquarters. We're going to hire hundreds of people. We're investing um, upwards of $50 million here over the next five years and um, bringing in uh, an engineering and product R&D center here. We're bringing our EMEA operations here. We're going to be bringing our um, our inside sales and customer service team here. So a uh, huge investment there. Um, and so that's important. Um, and then just meeting the team, meeting so many new people. Um, and then just, um, you know, uh, came here to, to meet some of our marketplace partners as well. So we're constantly finding new partnerships um, with different vendors. And so it's exciting to come and meet them. Yeah, and your timing on that is impeccable as well in terms of restrictions and things like that because yes. you're attracting in you're attracting in staff also from around Europe who look at Dublin as a place to move to and that's not attractive if you're stuck in your apartment all day long under restrictions but when you can get out so and, and I'm curious is is in your experience how important is timing in the success journey? So I think timing is very important. Um, I think you can have a great idea at the wrong time. And I think that you can, you know, not be successful because of that. So I'd say timing is everything. Um, 
obviously the right time with the wrong product or the wrong execution can fail. So not timing isn't everything. But I think if you match timing with execution, um, that's a recipe for success. What about, I want to talk to you a little bit, Chris, about your own journey as a leader, because there's a big difference from going in a very tiny company yeah. uh, where you were an AE before, 10 employees and so on, to right. now you've got 600 employees and there and thereabouts and, and growing. And that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yep. What, what are the kind of challenges that you've come up against? And um, I'm interested in the kind of lessons you've learned as you go through that journey. Yeah. So, I mean, where do I start? <laughs> I'd say, uh, you know, I think there's lessons with, you know, knowing uh, who to hire and when to hire. I think there's, uh, you know, you've got to scale the organization and it's almost like a, a giant puzzle, making sure you have the right people in the different departments at the right time. So I think that, um, and then really recruiting in general. I think luckily my sales background um, correlated really well with recruiting. And so I was able to use my, you know, cold calling-esque skills mixed with, you know, my, my personal approach to really kind of close candidates like I would, would close a customer per se. So I think that helped in the early days of hiring people. Um, but other challenges were, you know, uh, just the expertise and needing to scale a company globally. And just to solve for that, I have, um, you know, uh, about 100 plus advisors that I lean on. So building an advisory group was really successful for me. Um, I think it's knowing when employees are kind of uh, at the time where they, you know, fit you and when they maybe outgrow you or you outgrow them even though you can still be friends. So there's, you know, many employees, um, you know, uh, that I still keep in touch with that have moved on. But I think it's important to know when, you know, when to, to say goodbye or when they say goodbye to not take things personally. Um, so I think that's been a, a learning as a leader. Um, I think it's, you know, what to focus on, what are the key initiatives, what are the areas to invest in. Um, so you've got to learn, uh, you know, there's a lot to there. Um, Learning, I think, as a leader to to raise venture capital, I mean, we raised 155 million in, in in capital. So that was something that prior to starting Sindo, so I really didn't have that expertise in, and so that was a lot of learning by doing. Um, so lot, lots of learnings. Is there anything you would have done in any way different that might have saved time or hassle in that journey? You know, I'm a very uh, optimistic thinker and kind of have a. Uh, a strategy where I, I kind of think that things happen for a reason and it really helps me focus on the positives. So I wouldn't go back and say, hey, I'd change this because that kind of messed us up. I think everything kind of puts us where we are today. Um, and so I don't dwell on the negatives. I think it, it's helped me as a manager and as a leader uh, propel forward by not being stuck in kind of uh, maybe a pessimistic type of thought thinking process. Let me ask you, this, I'll reframe that then a little bit. Sure. Imagine somebody's listening to this and they're in that place where they've got a great idea, they've gone out, yeah. they've got some maybe angel capital. So they've they started their journey. Yep. But now they need to go through that. And you mentioned about employees, but yeah. raise money and so on. What would your advice to them be? And I said, be careful of this, focus yeah. on that. What would that kind of advice yeah. be? So a couple of easy advice. So one is I'd say get advisors early, early, um, go build an advisory group. And that's not, you know, five advisors. It could be 30 advisors. Um, so I'd say get advisors. That's something key. I'd say 
quickly uh, figure out what I call go-to-market fit, which is uh, if you're an early stage company, oftentimes the founders are the ones selling the product day one as you, you have to. But it's sometimes, um, you know, the passion of a founder can, can sell anything. And so we really quickly early on hired two AEs and two SDRs to figure out if our outbound sales engine could work. And that was part, that was almost just as important as product market fit. But I'd say is, is our go-to-market fit. Can we actually scale this? Mm-hmm. So I'd say if you're a founder listening, like hire salespeople yesterday. Um, stop doing it yourself and go hire people. Um, I'd say build a recruiting engine, like get really good at recruiting because oftentimes uh, recruiting is the, the hardest part of scaling a company and build processes and systems and get really good at recruiting. I think off, I, I talked to some entrepreneurs who uh, are hesitant to hire and think, hey, we can do that with less people or let's let's hold off. And I think that, you know, get, um, creating a place where you can uh, affordably hire a talent and scale is super important. That's uh, now I'm beginning to get a sense when I read those comments about your energy and work ethic. Yeah. That's that's the magic ingredient there as well and all of that because without that there's that that sounds as I listen to it, it's quite overwhelming the number of things you've got to do. And and it's almost like they're all in parallel, you gotta be doing them all at once. Now I, I know that's not reality, but that's yeah. that seems to be a drive. Uh, would you describe yourself as a as a workaholic? Um, I would say that I would uh, describe myself as I work smart, not long. So I will be someone that puts in eight hours a day and takes holidays quite frequently. Um, and so I uh, very much try to practice what I preach to our employees and create a culture of working smart, not long, you know, you're not going to find me doing 20 hour days, uh, because I don't want my team to do that. And I don't, you know, I think of, uh, this as a marathon could be decades long, not a sprint. Um, so, uh, I find myself loving traveling, loving taking Friday's afternoon off. I love, and that was from day one. So mm-hmm. even when we were just starting the company, my found, my co-founder and I purposefully wanted to create a, a company culture that was not a workaholic culture, but it was a work smart and have fun. Mm. And when you take time off, apart from spending time with your family, what do you like to do? You mentioned uh, golf. Yes, love golfing, love hiking, love camping, kayaking, uh, love traveling, trying new foods. So, you know, I would, you'll find me somewhere around the world, you know, trying some food, drinking some drinks. And, mm. uh, just and you're from spring. Northern California, which from a hiking point of view, and yes. um, I, I, I drove there a few years ago to Yosemite from, from San Francisco. Yeah. It's trying. beautiful. I go to Yosemite every oh. year to do some backpacking. I love it there. You are blessed to be so close to that place. That yeah. is just heaven on earth. It really is. It's, it's a great place. It really is. If you were the secretary for education, and I don't know if that's the right term in the States, mm-hmm. and you had the power to make any one subject mandatory in high school, mm-hmm. what would it be and why? That's a great question. Um, I think, uh, I, I would say like the subject of is like starting a company 101. Um, or uh, I think that, um, and with that, I would say kind of uh, helping uh, understand like the, the growing, what an org chart and what are the different jobs available. Um, I think oftentimes 
you know, as a high schooler or, or so, you're, you know, you think you can be an accountant or a policeman or a firefighter, but there's, you know, infinite jobs at a, at a startup uh, and a growing company. And so I, I think that um, from my, uh, I have a little brother-in-law who's uh, just recently graduated high school. Um, I went through like my entire org chart with him and he's like, oh, I didn't know that there's a user researcher or a pro- product manager that designs mobile apps. Mm. Uh, and so there's just an infinite number of jobs out there, um, especially in the tech world that I think aren't uh, properly explained to our youth. And, you know, you can get inspiration to wanting to design mobile apps and knowing that that's a job and that's obtainable. Um, so I think it's really um, helping people understand what, is, what a startup business is and all the myriad of jobs that can be at one. To make them experience for high school more entrepreneurial and give people that opportunity. Entrepreneurial and then, you know, just like what is a company and how does it, how do, what are the facets of it? You know, what, what are the different jobs in finance and sales and marketing and product and engineering? I think some are obvious and there's many that are non-obvious. And, um, you know, if you find your career path, whether it's entrepreneurship or being, uh, you know, a product manager, um, you can live a better life if you feel fulfilled. As CEO of the company, you oversee product development, finance, sales, marketing, HR, all of the major functions. What aspect of that do you enjoy the most? Uh, what requires most energy from you? Yeah, so I, um, I think depending on the stage of company, it's shifted. So when I first started the company, Product and engineering was like my lifeblood, and that's what I focused on 24-7. Um, that then shifted to being more of a focus on marketing and sales during a, a kind of a period um, and has now shifted to more recruiting and people um, and, and other initiatives. And I've hired brilliant people to lead all these functions. Um, and so um, now I kind of do a little bit of everything, um, which is fun. Um, but I think depending on the stage, it, it really depends. Uh, but for me now, it's I like to keep my hand in, in, in all departments. Okay. A uh, couple of quick questions before we finish up, Chris. One, from a business perspective, as you look out into 2022, I should say, not from a business, from a sales, looking at a sales perspective, where do you see the greatest challenges facing, say, sales leadership as they try to contribute to the bottom line in terms of all the things they've got to get right? Where do you think yeah. the, the landmines are and the difficulties are? Yeah, so I think one of the uh, areas that I see emerging fast is just the plethora of sales tech. There's a lot of software and tools now coming out for sales uh, people, sales leaders. And so it's navigating that, uh, being able to purchase uh, t- technology and sales tech, which um, I think is important and, and training and enabling the team. And so I think the best sales leaders will be the best buyers of sales tech to enable their teams to be that much better. Okay. And then two personal questions. Of course. One is I want you to imagine that your house is on fire. Now, okay. if I'm your safe, heads are safe. If you have heads yeah. and your, your phone and your computer, are out, they're, they're okay. Um, but you have time to run back in and grab one object in your home. What would it be in the way? Um, 
probably my uh, Christmas ornament collection. Uh, whenever I travel to a new country or city, I buy an ornament from that uh, location. And so I have a box full of, you know, 50 plus ornaments. And so that's pretty memorable and something that would be uh, impossible to replace. Have you got any from Dublin? Not yet. So one caveat is I get these with my wife. Um, oh. And since my wife's not with me this time, I'm not going to get one without her. Um, so it's something that we share together as a memory when we're putting them back on the Christmas tree. Yeah. But uh, my next trip out here, my wife's going to come along. So then I'll find one then. We don't have a lot in terms of year-round Christmas shops. You get some of that in the States. I've seen it. There is one. Yeah, sometimes I cheat with like a keychain um, yeah. and turn that into an ornament. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there, 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 there is one place I can think of. If you're back again, called the Christmas Shop, and I think they're open all year round. But um, yeah, it's it's even though it's funny, even though we do Christmas for much longer here than typically mm -hmm. it's yeah. The once it's done, then it seems to be you don't hear about it again until the following year. We we put everything away and that's <laughs> it. Um, but that's really interesting, and I, and I do know the value we did with our kids. Now, my eldest kid is 28, and the youngest is 20. So, but we every year, and it would be kind of as the family grew, there'd be an extra person on the ornament, and their names are on it. And then you put those on the tree, and then you can look. And, and it's actually the it's when you're unpacking it, exactly putting it up that's the moment, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, it's it you can reminisce, and yeah. I love it because it's like. Uh, you could reminisce on all the different fun trips and memories. Um, you get to see it once a year, but it doesn't clutter up your whole house for the whole year either. It's yeah. something that's uh, easy to keep a, a neat, um, non-great idea. And final question for you, Chris, is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title to be? Oh, man. Um... I don't know. Probably, maybe I, I would write the uh, book. So maybe it's just like the autobiography, you know, of Chris's life by Chris. I don't know that I want to let you away with that, Chris. I think that's yeah. too easy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's no, no, not an autobiography. Somebody else is writing about you. You're, you're gone. You have no okay, choice. I'm gone. All right. Now someone or, else is There's a statue erected in your honor on the face plate. Maybe, uh, all right. I got it. Maybe I'll just, maybe it's titled uh, Send It. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, the meter's always running. I love it. Yeah, Chris Rudolph, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's an absolute fascinating insights into the minds of. Uh, I don't know. Are you valued as a unicorn yet? If you're not, you should be. That's exactly yeah, soon. Our soon. last round, not quite, but uh, we could if we got raise the next round for sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much again.